Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. So, he had spent years living unhindered. Years living untethered. On the move, on the run, city to city, town to town. He traveled by way of boat. Other times he'd travel by foot. Sometimes he'd be smuggled through baskets, other times on horseback. And for this great man of God, this great apostle of God, you have to imagine that for all the freedom that he enjoyed, for all the travel that he enjoyed, all the open road he enjoyed, adjusting to a new season under house arrest would be difficult. And and yet that's where we find him. The Apostle Paul, if you've heard of him before, the first missionary of the church, the first church planter in the world. He's been traveling. He's been speaking. He's been teaching. And finally, the law catches up with him. And for two years, he sits under house arrest. Rather than being housed as a common criminal, the, the apostle was permitted to live in his own rented dwelling, though bound with a chain and in the company of a guard. And while for many of us the idea of living under house arrest would seem completely debilitating, two years under house arrest, not being able to leave, what could you get done? For Paul, it was amazingly productive. The book of Acts ends, listen to that, the book of Acts Describing Paul's missionary journeys, describing the early church, ends describing his house arrest. And here's how it ends. Here's, here's the last verse of the book of Acts. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed, he proclaimed, he said house arrest, right? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and unhindered. That's a pa- The last word of the book of Acts is the word unhindered, and it's used to describe the Apostle Paul living under arrest. That's powerful. One day as he's sitting with his security detail, his Roman guard, one who's been assigned to him, one who's quite literally chained to him. They don't have ankle monitors. They have people, and they chain people to you. One day, Paul's sitting under house arrest, and he's writing. He relights the lamp that's gone out. He redips the pen that's run dry, and in walks a messenger a man named Epaphras. He looks familiar to Paul. Maybe they've met. Maybe. Maybe Epaphras has sat beneath his teaching. Maybe, maybe it was in Ephesus, those years that Paul spent in the lecture halls. Oh yes, this was him. He'd, he'd aged a little. Church work will do that to you. As he begins to speak, Paul hears of the fruit from the time he spent lecturing in Ephesus. Ones who would become punch drunk on the same love of God that Paul was punch drunk on. The ones who would take their zeal that they received from Paul, their passion, their new tools, their lessons back to their hometowns just as Epaphras had done. He planted a church in his hometown. A church in the city of Colossae, the place he was from. Oh, Paul had never been there. 
but he'd heard of it. He heard there were believers there. He heard he might have been responsible for that, that his connection to Epaphras led to the gospel being proclaimed in Colossae, but now there's problems there too. Anywhere you have people, you tend to get some problems, right? There's a little bit of false teaching. Some from the Jewish Christians who are teaching some strange things, like, well, you still got to be Jewish to be Christian. Got to have the dietary laws. You got to have the festivals. You got to have the circumcision. And the guys go, I'm out. And then there are these early Gnostics who were there too, who were teaching, well, the flesh is sinful. The soul is good, right? And so God becoming flesh, well, that's crazy. God would never become flesh. So Jesus must have been an apparition. And Paul goes, oh man, both of those things are wrong. And Epaphras knows false teachings will really dismantle a church really threaten the life of something new. This group, this gathering, these people, the unity and the effectiveness that they're enjoying, their passion, this is unique. It's precious. It has to be protected. It has to be defended. And so Epaphras walks into a Paul who's under house arrest, who's got a lot of time on his hands, and he goes, Paul, will you write them a letter? What a daunting task. Would you? These people don't know Paul. What right does he have to speak authority into their lives? Sure, they've, they've heard of him, but this is before Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, right? No one knows even what he looks like. He didn't plant the church. He'd never even been to Colossae. And now you want me to write a letter to a group that's giving them a verbal spanking from a guy you could just write off. You don't even know who I am. Would you do it? And, and if you would, if you're that kind of bold, where would you start? Where would you start? Listing your rank? All the reasons they should listen to you? All the reasons you have authority? Do you start with an overt flex? With a humble brag? By listing all the stuff you've accomplished? I mean, where do you start? And Paul redips his pen. He relights the lamp. And he begins Colossians 1. You have your Bibles? Are you ready to sink into this? Can you tell I'm excited? This is such a great letter. This is the setting for it, right? Paul begins to write. He pulls out a scroll. He pulls out a pen. If you forgot your scroll, Jay has some in the back, right? He's standing there ready. If you need a Bible, if you forgot yours, if you brought yours, great. We're going to take some notes. We're going to write in the columns. We're going to circle and underline and highlight stuff. Sure, it's going to sound a little bit like a lecture for a minute this morning, but we'll get through it, right? We can do this together. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. We're going to stop there. Lord Jesus, we are starting a new book, and we are so excited. Would you be our teacher? 
We ask this in your name. Amen. We are, we are starting a new teaching series today on the book of Colossians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. We recommend people bringing their Bibles. We always, we'll put the addresses of where we're looking on the screen so that you can turn there too, but very rarely do we put the actual text because we want to treat this book like a textbook for life, right? And so if you don't have one, we want you to get one. If, if you can't get one, we've got some here. You can take it. It's our gift to you. We really want to prioritize the reading of this book. This comes from some time I spent as a youth pastor when I used to put everything on a screen and realized one day in this epiphany, right, that we had raised a generation of Christians who didn't know how to use this book, right? And we're like, oh boy, we got to get back to that lost art. So Colossians chapter 1, um, as, you, as you turn there, as you settle in, as you begin getting your notes ready, I, I kind of, I want to point out something that kind of motivated my search, my study this week as I was praying for you, this kind of guiding thought. As we begin Colossians, this letter the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's this. I think that sometimes we underestimate the degree to which who we are now and what we do now is shaped by what we believe about our future. Right? I want to say that again. I think we underestimate the degree to which who we are now and what we do now is shaped by what we believe about our futures, our ultimate futures, right? To say it another way, you can put up with just about anything in the here and now. If you know that there's some relief or reward or payoff for you later. Isn't that true? There's this great illustration that I'd be hard-pressed to find a better one. It's of two women. Imagine two women. They have absolutely the same job, absolutely the same menial tasks, absolutely the same horrible working conditions, the same long hours, yet one of them is promised that after a year of working under this horrible set of circumstances that she'll get $15,000, the other one is promised she'll get $15 million. <laughs> we know automatically, right, that these two women are going to be approaching their jobs very differently. They're going to be approaching their work completely different, differently. They are not processing it on the basis of present circumstances. At least the one who's going to make $15 million in a year. Those present circumstances aren't going to seem that big a deal. She's going to be completely controlled. And how she works at this moment will be guided by what she believes about her ultimate future. And this is how the earliest Christians lived. They weren't afraid of the present because of their view of the future. Now, for our study of the book of Colossians, and bear with me for a moment, because we've got to set the stage. I do want to lay a foundation. We're going to be here for a minute. Some of you have realized, like in some of these studies that we undertake, right, we can spend like a year on the same thing, right? So we might, I want to build a foundation. I want to lay out for you the, an understanding of what these Colossian believers were like. And so for a moment, it might sound like a lecture. Please don't take it that way. For the purposes of our study, it's very important. We have to understand why early Christianity triumphed in the Roman Empire, especially in Colossae. These earliest Christians were different from their pagan neighbors. 
so different, radically different in all the history of the world. And in fact, if you're taking notes, there's primarily three ways. This is historic scholarship. This isn't like Bible teaching. This is historic. These are secular historians that kind of look back 2,000 years and go, okay, something different was happening back then. And they, they boiled it down to three primary ways that this new group of people were different, remarkably different from their pagan neighbors. One is that when the great epidemics hit the urban centers of the Greco-Roman world, most people fled the cities for fear they'd get sick. Yet Christians stayed in the cities. Some moved into the cities, even though they, in many cases, died doing so at great risk to themselves. This new group of people moved into the dangerous place with no fear of getting sick, no fear of death. This was completely new in the Greco-Roman world. Everyone wanted to preserve their lives because there was a great uncertainty about what lay at the other end of it. Life after death, if it existed at all, was not something you wanted. And yet, suddenly, this new group of people, out of nowhere, secular history goes, this is weird. No one's done this before. Secondly, if you want to kind of enhance this even more, when these earliest Christians were persecuted, they were, they were put to death unjustly. They didn't respond with terrorism. This is new. They didn't respond with violent retaliation. They didn't respond with guerrilla warfare. They, guys, they died praying for their enemies. This hadn't happened before. They prayed forgiveness over their persecutors, over their oppressors. That's weird. This is, historians today look back at that and go, Phew. no one's done this yet. The third thing that's different, at the height of the Roman Empire, Rome had, and you probably know this, it's the first time in history Rome had conquered all the nations of the world. That had never happened before. So for the first time, all national borders are open. The nations aren't against each other. They were all subjugated to Rome, which means that for the first time in history, the cities of the Roman Empire became fiercely multi-ethnic. It never happened before. In those cities prior to that, there was a lot of division over ethnicity, but suddenly everybody is a Roman citizen, right? So there's a great deal of ethnic tension. Those kinds of folks had never lived together before under the same umbrella. And the Christian church was the first institution in the history of the world that brought these people together across ethnic barriers, saying essentially race means nothing. See, there was so much tension that even under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, they still wanted to kind of part ways and kind of separate off. And, and there's this new institution going, actually, it doesn't matter. Race isn't important. There's no pecking order, no races, no cultures, no institution has ever done anything like this in the history of the world. But they believed that God was making a new nation out of all the others. This is different. This had never happened in history before. And it's precisely this kind of unity that's at stake when Paul sits down to write this letter that we're studying this morning. He's been told by a man named Epaphras that a church has started in Colossae, a group of believers. It seems to be thriving. It seems to be functioning as a group of people that meet all of the characteristics, all of the criteria that we just listed out, right? Fearlessness in the face of disease, they're going into the cities. 
Uh, a fearlessness about persecution. They don't care. They're totally unafraid by the threat of death. Their oppressors would say, hey, stop talking about Jesus or we'll kill you. And they're like, oh, please don't make me go be with Jesus. Like, I totally am. Like, what's, what's the worst you can do? I saw him die and he came back. So go for it. Like, you know, they're completely unafraid, right? And then there's this, this radical unity that the world has never seen before. But, but now something has happened inside of this church where people are displaying these characteristics. Something has happened that threatens to dismantle the entire thing. Epaphras has told Paul, there's false teaching that's going on, right? And, and, and could you write a letter? And Paul could start that. He could start by spanking everybody. He could start by listing out all the false teaching. He could start naming names. He could start calling people out, reprimanding and scolding. But as, uh, instead... He seeks to appeal to them, this is so important, on the basis of what brought them together in the first place. This is what we see in verse 2. So in verse 1, he's like, hey, it's Paul here. You know, they always do the greeting at the front, right? It's Paul here. Hey, just letting you know who this is. Verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae. I love that. Greek word, hagias. Holy To God's holy people in Colossae. Then he doubles down. The faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Faithful brothers and sisters. Holy people in Christ. I love that in Christ. Circle, underline, highlight in Christ. It's going to take us a minute to get through this passage. In Christ. This is Paul's formulaic way of describing who a person is when they say yes to Jesus. We've come up with all sorts of different ways, like asking Jesus into your heart or are you saved? For Paul, it was always in Christ. Fundamentally, that's who you are when you say yes to Jesus. You are in Christ. And when Paul addresses these believers, he calls them all saints. You are saints. He doesn't separate some from others in the Colossian church because every true Christian is a saint. And according to our research into the first century, these saints were wildly different from the rest of the world in the three ways that we just talked about, right? They were unafraid of disease. They were unthreatened by persecution. In fact, they died praying for their persecutors, right? And they were unified, which begs the question, why? What was so different? What started this? What had they experienced that caused this fearlessness? What had they experienced that caused this reckless unity? Why were the Christians then so much more compassionate to the sick than the world around them? Why were they so much more forgiving to their persecutors? Were they just more virtuous than we are? Did they just suddenly evolve? Were they modern or ahead of their time? Were they nicer people? And the answer, of course, is no. Paul says right here, what was different about them is what they now believed their futures to be. Their belief about where this is all headed radically shifted, and it caused them to be fearless unintimidated and unified. Paul, look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Circle, underline, highlight that. We'll talk about that in a minute. And of the love you have for all God's people. Verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. You see that? The, hope, the faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. You see, for these Colossian believers, their pagan neighbors, their understanding of what their future would be, 
ultimately was shrouded in mystery for the pagan world. They were completely uncertain about what the future held, what the future world held, what life after death would look like if it existed at all. They didn't know. They weren't sure they want. There was such an uncertainty about it. And then these Colossian believers come along, and for the first time in history, a group of people has hope. You see that word? A future hope stored up for them in heaven. Isn't that powerful? And this hope, it's not just like ridiculous, like wishful thinking hope. Paul says it's actually anchored to something. So what I want to explore, two questions. One, what is this hope anchored to? What is it anchored in? What is the foundation of it, right? That's question number one. And then two, what is it tied to? Like, what does it cause? What is the result of this hope? So what is it anchored to? We're going to look at that first. Verse four, we have heard, this is so cool, of your faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, These Christians had hope, Paul says, because of their faith in Christ Jesus. That's what what their hope is anchored to. And then with this anchor, they also experience a faith and a hope, you see, that sprang forth, it says, from the hope that was stored up for them. And that's the result of of their faith. Their faith is in Christ Jesus, and that faith in Christ Jesus shapes for them a joyous certainty about God's future, an eternal glory that they were one day going to experience, a love that is in their future because of their faith in Christ Jesus. This is the reason they stayed in the cities. This is the reason they weren't afraid of death. Because they knew that after death came God's love, they'd be in the presence of Jesus. They're like, what can you possibly do to me here and now? Like, I don't care. You know what I have on the other side? They they didn't feel the need to judge people. You ever, this is so different. They didn't feel the need to judge people because they, but this is the first people group in history that believed that God would judge everything at the end of time and set it right. So they're like, why do I need to judge? The Greeks and the Romans, they had no concept of a final judgment. No concept of it. And the Christians did. And so for the first time, they're like, why do I need to be the judge of anything? God's going to do it. I don't have to. All pagans believed that every nation had their own God. Christians believed that there was one God over all the nations, and he was doing something new over all the nations and from all the nations. And their faith is anchored to Jesus. And that leads to a future hope, listen, that changed the way they lived. Because of that future hope and this foundation here, the way they lived is completely different. Their faith in Christ changed how they lived. It gave them a completely different outlook on life, a joyous life culminating in a reshaped conviction about their futures because their view of the future is so different. So they lived in all those other ways that we just discussed differently. Their view of living was completely different because of the certainty that they had, Paul says, in Jesus, their faith in Jesus. And so they go through life completely unafraid. They're not intimidated. What can the world do to me? Like, they're like, okay, I have a faith in Christ, and and I understand where he is right now, and that's where all of this is headed. So bring on whatever you want to bring on. Like, I'm totally unintimidated by that. And I... I read that in this passage. I study that, and I go, okay, this is crazy because these guys, as far as we know, had never actually met Jesus. Like, imagine being Paul writing this letter. You've 
spent some time with Jesus. We know from some of his writings, Paul spent some time with Jesus. He calls himself one abnormally born, so he wasn't a part of the original 12, but he had some time with Jesus at some point, supernaturally. He saw the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. He experienced him one-on-one. But now you're meeting these people who haven't had any of that, and yet they believe anyway? Paul's writing to them. He's going, oh man, we're so excited. We've heard about your faith in Jesus, even though they'd never met him. Where could this faith come from? You've never met him. I used the word a minute ago, certainty. Where could this certainty come from when you've never met him? See, if that's what was different about these early Christians, that they had an absolute certainty in Christ, well, Can you actually be certain of something you've never seen? And the answer, and and therefore the key to this whole dynamic of Christian hope, is the person of Jesus Christ, and specifically (laughs) the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what their hope was tied to. It's t- their anchor is Jesus, right? But they were so convinced of the bodily resurrection of the Lord that it ruined them for any kind of intimidation, any kind of fear, any kind of questioning about anything. They were like, man, Jesus, was, he, he came back to life, right? The early Christians looked at the resurrection of Jesus, and this view of the resurrection gave them absolute certainty about God's future. More, it described for them what the future would be like. And it came from the certainty of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, among other places, right, he talks about the resurrection. He says, man, if that didn't happen, then shut it all down, right? Because that's what it's based on. The resurrection of Jesus gave them certainty about the future. He says in 1 Corinthians, he goes, Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter. I love that he starts listing these. Like, you could go talk to these people, right? He, he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12 at the same time. Then he appeared to more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living and some of whom have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the other apostles. And then last of all, he says, he appeared to me as if to one abnormally born. So how does the certainty work? Could they really have certainty about something that they've never seen? And then could that certainty revolutionize the way that they view the world? The average person might say, and I've heard this before, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, in the primitive, more primitive world, our ancestors were open to things like a bodily resurrection. And I go, oh, you don't understand the world 2,000 years ago. It's a common misnomer. It's not true at all. It reveals an ignorance about that first century world. People back then did not believe that that was possible. They were not open to that sort of thing. If you raise that objection, a very common one, it displays an ignorance of the first century world in which Jesus lived. In the first century world, people had two basic worldviews, one or the other, right? There was the Greco-Roman worldview where the body was bad and the soul was good, and so death, if anything, was a liberation of the soul. So the idea that the soul would come back, this good thing, and re-inhabit a bad body was just ridiculous. They're like, that would never, they would never even consider that. 
The second worldview is the Jewish one, that at the end of time that God would make a new heaven and a new earth, and so somewhere there might be a resurrection or, or a renewing of the world, but an individual bodily resurrection? No. It was every bit as impossible to their worldview back then as it is to modern people today. Many modern people today reject the idea of a resurrection because they're like, well, you know, back then they had a very superstitious worldview, but today we have a scientific one. And I'm like, I don't think you understand the worldview of the people 2,000 years ago. They didn't believe in that sort of thing either. Their worldview was every bit as impervious to that possibility as ours. But, and here's one thing that we know, thousands of early Christians thousands of people 2,000 years ago had a worldview revolution overnight. And this is what's so compelling and what you kind of, if you're going to push back at the resurrection, like the historic evidence of an actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, this is what you have to figure out, right? Something happened overnight. A worldview shifted overnight. Something that has never happened before then or since then. A worldview is a philosophical view of the nature of the universe, and those things don't change overnight. Normally, they change gradually. Like, people become more scientific. People become more sophisticated. One thing that we see, secular research suggests without a doubt that at the beginning of the Christian era 2,000 years ago, that overnight, 100% unanimity, people believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. All of a sudden, like hundreds of thousands of people suddenly started believing that God had taken life from the future age and planted it right here in space and time. Suddenly, thousands of Jews, thousands of Greeks all began to believe something that had no worldview in history, that no worldview, no philosophy, nothing in the history of the world had ever allowed for, that a man had been bodily resurrected and therefore proved himself to be the Son of God. And this just didn't compute to them. It had never happened before. But people suddenly started believing it. The Colossian believers were brought together overnight by a unified 100% certainty of the person and work and supremacy of Jesus, proven by his resurrection. They, they thought his resurrection is the proof of everything he said about himself and everything he said about God. It was the receipt right? You know how you use a receipt, like you're leaving Sam's Club, and they're like, I need to make sure you paid for this, and you're like, oh, I got proof, right? To them, the resurrection was proof. Everything Jesus said about God was true. Everything he said about himself was true, and if anything threatened to dismantle their unity, it would be a, a confusion as to the identity of Jesus, right? So that's why Paul starts in this passage with Jesus, there seems to be some confusion about Jesus. And so he goes, okay, I want to bring you back to the umbrella underneath which we all have unity and certainty. It's the, it's the idea that Jesus exists, like we all agree on Jesus, and he, he was resurrected. And to bolster his claims, this is powerful, Paul put down things here, a lot like what he puts down in 1 Corinthians, that there's hundreds and hundreds of people espousing a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because they saw it. Some said they had one-on-one -on -one experiences. Some said they saw him together as a group. Sometimes it happened repeatedly. Some said they were in a group with 500 other people. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who began saying in the first century world, we saw him. 
We talked to him. We stuck our fingers in the nail prints. Like, I wouldn't normally be the type of person that would say this sort of thing. But something happened. They saw someone. And we know that over a 40-day period, some people say they talked to him repeatedly. Over and over. Not just a one-off experience. Paul says 500 of them were together at one time. And then he goes, he goes, and by the way, most of those people are still living. You know why he says that? Why would you say that? In a public document during the Pax Romana, when everybody could travel anywhere they would want to, Paul is saying, go ask them. There's 500 people who all had the same experience, right? Most of them are still alive. You should go check. Something happened, and hundreds of people spoke to thousands of their relatives, and thousands of their friends, and thousands of their neighbors, and as a result, thousands of people became Christians. And we also, they, some of those people died for their faith, right? This wasn't a made-up story. These were people who began living sacrificially, as we said a moment ago. They start moving into places that are infected with disease, and they're totally unafraid. Why? Because they thought about it, and they go, okay, something must have happened. We didn't see him with our own eyes, but something must have happened. Something that so radically altered their worldviews that they became completely unafraid, and different from any other culture in history. Nowhere else in history has a worldview changed overnight like this. Something happened. And Paul goes, oh, I know. You put your faith in that Jesus. You thought about it. It made sense. You added it up. Sometimes we think that we have to divorce ourselves of reason to give our lives to Jesus, and I don't think that's true at all. Paul goes, you guys wait it out, and you get, look at what he says in verse 4. We have heard of your faith in Christ. He's writing this as one who has seen him to a group of people who have not seen him. He goes, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Like, that's amazing. You, you just believe in something you haven't seen but, and look what he says, and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, right? So they're tethered to this future thing. This is the result of their faith in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus, their certainty in the Lord. This anchor gives them a faith and a hope that springs up because of what they have for them stored up in heaven, in the midst of so much pain and suffering in the world, these believers were so focused, so strong, so impervious because of their certainty in Christ. Their certainty, their faith in Christ, and the subsequent hope that this bread. So when they're threatened with lions and arenas, they're like, I don't care. They're threatened with swords. They're like, I mean, what do you, what, shut up about Jesus or we'll light you on fire. They're like, well, I guess you're going to have to get some matches. Like, I'm not scared. Like, you can't, you can't shut this down. Like, with so much pain and suffering and hurt in the world, they figured out a way to handle it that wouldn't destroy them, but actually made them stronger and wiser. And I read that and I go, don't you want what they had? Like, they were threatened to be thrown into arenas with lions. Now, we don't, we don't have that anymore. Most of us. I would assume, if you do, stay after. I have so many questions. 
We don't have arenas with lions, but you know what we do have? Our lumps, diagnoses. We're going to have to biopsy that. We don't know what that means. How do you handle that? How do you handle staring down a diagnosis and going, I'm not afraid? How do you hit? Someone says, I want a divorce. How do you handle that? We're just like, oh, without being shaken. Don't you want what they had in order to handle these crazy things that life can throw at you? They're not lions anymore, but there's all sorts of things that we're walking through. How do you handle, how do you get what they had? Let's be practical. How did they get it? And here's what's so interesting. Paul tells us how they got it. In verse 6, it's not through wishful thinking. <laughs> Guys, there's entire philosophies, entire worldviews that are built around wishful things. Just whisper it out into the universe and it'll come back to you, right? Paul doesn't say, okay, they got it through wishful thinking. They just went, oh, it's going to be okay. Like they just, you know, no. He goes, look at verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. Circle, underline, highlight. I love that. It's bare, so it's not just something that you believe or just say you believe or repeat, right? It is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the, okay, this is the part, the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Okay, so this isn't wishful thinking, right? It's not wishful, it's just thinking. <laughs> it's just thinking, Paul goes, when you truly understand what God has done for you, when you truly understand that God sent Jesus, right? And, and not just like this, this foolish faith, right? That just blind faith, we call it. Paul goes, no, you sat down and thought about it. You thought about the resurrection. You asked, could all these people be lying? That's crazy. The, nobody would, not that many people, all of them in on a lie together. Why would all these people say that Jesus lived and they saw him after his death unless it actually happened? Well, why would Paul say, go and talk to the people if it was a hoax? Would all these people die for a hoax? They thought about it. They go, could it, could it have been a hallucination? No. 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. They're like, well, that doesn't make sense, right? Something happened. A man named Jesus existed. They put him to death. He came back to life. A lot of people saw it. And if they saw it, it must have happened. And if it happened, I'm going to put my faith in it. And that faith is going to spring forth into a hope in the future that's going to move me through this life. Undeterred. Unafraid. For these hundreds and hundreds of people who said that they saw Jesus, how do you come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for what we're doing today? The birth of the church. If it didn't happen, a new community, worldview change overnight, unless this actually happened. And you know what? No one else has ever been able to come up with another explanation. Not a satisfactory one. The only possible explanation is that a man named Jesus existed. He died on a cross. Hundreds of thousands of people saw him brought back to life, right? And if he was brought back to life, then everything he said was true. You find someone who predicts their own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, you follow that person. 
If that happened, and it seemed to them they did, then they placed their certainty in Jesus as a result. And their certainty led them to live radically different lives, unafraid of lions, unafraid of emperors, unafraid of diseases or lumps or divorce. Look at verse 6. In the same way, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and you truly understood God's grace. He goes, you didn't just receive a teaching. You just receive information. This changed how you lived. It changed so much. It was bearing fruit. It bore fruit. How did it bear fruit? You became unafraid of disease. You became unafraid of persecution. You were radically unified. That's the same sort of fruit we long for today. We can get that same sort of certainty. We can get that same sort of fearlessness. Where does it come from? It comes from hope. It's what Paul says. Hope in what? The future. Because of the resurrection, rooted in Jesus, you know where all of this is. You can move through this life with hope. Guys, hope is a powerful thing. We need to be people who are motivated by hope. Do you really understand what we have? What God's done for you? Shouldn't that make you fearless? For these believers, it changed how they lived. There was a, root, a hope that was rooted for them in Christ and led to a new future. Move them through this life. No matter what you're going through or experiencing, you want to read something powerful? I love this next section of Scripture. I'm going to try to blaze through it real quick because Bill said I would a moment ago. In verse 15, it's like, I was going to save this for next week, and I just can't. It's this rant that Paul hits. He starts talking about who you have access to in Jesus. He's like, do you understand what you have? Do you, do you understand the hope that you have that should move you through this life? He hits this section where he starts talking about Jesus. And notice, in verse 15, he doesn't mention anything about Jesus' earthly ministry here. You know, for many of us, our view of Jesus is tied to what we read in the Gospels. We forget. That's just three years of Jesus, right? He's existed since the beginning of time. That's a small, if you're thinking of him as only the three years in the Gospels, your Jesus is way too small. Paul goes, listen to how big my Jesus is. When he hits this rant, the sun is the image of the invisible. Oh, i got to stop there. I'm so sorry. But, okay, this, I get so carried away. I'll probably share this next week too, but act surprised next week, right? The sun is the image of the invisible God. Just stop right there for a minute. God's invisible. We all agree on that. Jesus is the image of of God. You know, the Greek word there is the Greek, it's the word icon. We get a word from it today. It's called icon, right? <laughs> it's something that gives you access to something. Okay, your phones have icons on them. Little apps, right, that you tap, and it gives you access to the real thing. Okay, on my phone right now, I have a little blue box with the letters TWC on there. It's not actually anything, but when I tap on it, all that is the Weather Channel, satellites, maps, all of that suddenly I have access to. Paul says, that's who Jesus is for you. He's the icon of God. You want God? 
You get, all, you get access to everything that God is through Jesus. He is the icon of the invisible God. He's like, if God took a selfie, it would look like Jesus. If God was like, hey, what's up? You know, like, it would be Jesus. That's who you get. That's who you have moving you through. He's the, the son. Listen to the power of this. And I promise, okay, I'll stop with, I won't chase any more rabbits. But the son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Right? So not 2,000 years ago. That was, that's a part of it, a very small part of his existence. If you're only thinking of Jesus as 2,000 years ago in the Gospels, Paul goes, you're accurate, but that's a real small Jesus. He's so much more. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before. For all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This might have been a poem that Paul wrote. This might be a poem that Paul memorized. It might have been a hymn that they sang. This is a rant that Paul goes. When he starts talking about Jesus, he just loses it. He goes, if, if you're looking at obstacles in this life, interruptions, hardships, difficulties, persecution. If you're swayed by those things, you may have forgotten who your Jesus is. You want hope to move through? It might not be the thing on the horizon that's the problem. It might be your view of Jesus. Your Jesus might be too small. Paul's Jesus, he goes, My, mine is the image of the invisible God, right? The firstborn over all creation. I mean, he goes on and he's before all things. He's always been. He was there at creation, and through him all things were created for him. You're like, that's so much. <laughs> that's so much bigger than my view of Jesus. He says in everything he has supremacy. In what? Everything. You don't need to fear. You don't need to, to be anxious, intimidated. Like, the early Christians got this. Paul goes, I think what you might need to do is adjust your view of who Jesus is. This is what Paul, for the Colossians, is banking will bring all the other issues for them into alignment, a right view of Jesus. He starts there. He could start by reprimanding, by calling out sin, by addressing false teaching. He's like, nope, I'm going to start by talking about Jesus. Because if you get that right, man, everything else falls into alignment. When you really understand who he is. It changes how you live. It gives you hope. And hope is a powerful thing. Back in the 50s, a scientist named Kurt Richter <laughs> performed a pretty terrible experiment on some pretty small and innocent animals. And don't come for me because I did not perform the experiment. I just read about it. 
So I'm going to share it with you. And some of you are going to be real mad. I did not do it. Right? I just read about it. He decided to see how long rats <laughs> could tread water. I told you it's bad. To find out, he placed dozens of small animals in large buckets of water. After 15 minutes, only 15 minutes, nearly all of them had succumbed to exhaustion. They'd given up, stopped paddling, they drowned. 16 minutes in, zero were left. They all died. So then Richter took a second batch. With these luckier ones, he repeated the experiment. Only this time, he took them out of the water at the 12-minute mark. At the 12-minute mark, he dried them off, he fed them, he gave them a minute to collect themselves, and then he put them back in. The second time they were in the tubs, 15 minutes went by, still treading water. 20 minutes went by, still treading water. An hour goes by. 24 hours go by. 48 hours go by. 60 hours went by. On average, this second batch went 60 hours treading water before giving up. 240 times longer than the original ones. Why? Hope. Richter proved that hope is a key factor in your willingness to struggle on. The animals that had been helped in the past had hope of being saved because they'd been saved before. Their future hope of being saved transformed their present reality, gave them a supernatural ability to tread water. It so transformed them that they kept fighting, kept paddling, kept believing, trusting all was not lost. Rescue was on the way. The ones without that hope just gave up. A lot of lessons there, isn't there? We have a hope. Those early Christians had a hope that tethered them to Jesus. They had an accurate understanding of that Jesus. They also saw in their rear views that the Lord had saved them. They had hope before. They're going to have it again. Guys, the Lord has saved you too. And more, he's promised you heaven. We underestimate the degree to which who we are now is shaped by what we believe about our futures. So what do you believe? How big is your Jesus? Or how small is your Jesus? Maybe you need to correct that today. Maybe you need to receive hope. Maybe you need to remember who it is that you're talking to when you talk to him. Let's do that now. Let's do that now. Jesus, as I, Jesus, as I, right now, as I begin speaking to you. Just convicted by how quickly I can rush into your presence with many words. And your scriptures say that fools do that. We forget who we're talking to. And more, sometimes I just get ah, lazy, complacent. Sometimes I trivialize who you are, treat you as some celestial Santa Claus. I just start listing out what I want from you. And I forget the miracle that I get to talk to you at all.
You are the God from before creation. You were there at creation. Everything was made through you and for you. In everything, you have supremacy. And sometimes we forget that. We shift our focus from you to those, those giants on our horizon. And what we need this morning is a, a reminder, a refreshing, the hope that we have, the faith that we put in you as the foundation and then the hope of what we get one day that hope that moved these early Christians so radically changed their worldviews that they were unafraid in the face of persecution and disease. They were radically unified because they were moved through life with this, this unflinching hope in you. How dare we be so deterred by such small things in contrast to you. Forgive us, Jesus. We want to be like that early church. We want to be like those Colossian brothers and sisters that we read about this morning. We want to have an accurate understanding of who you are, as accurate as we can get this side of eternity. We don't want to fall in love with lesser things. We don't want to stare at ourselves when we could be looking at you. So Jesus, in this moment, <clears throat> got about a minute or two before we head out of here. I just kind of want to give you the floor. Spirit, would you enter into this room, minister to each heart individually? If there's something that's caused us to take our eyes off of Jesus and his grandness, his bigness. If our Jesus is too small, would you correct that? So we're going to head out of here back into a world full of those giants, those voices, those things that are trying to intimidate us. We need to be armed for that with a proper understanding of who you are. So speak to our hearts right now. Let's take a minute, friends, and just identify that. We'll close with a song and a prayer. Just want to give you just a short, quiet time to hear from the Lord before the noise fires back up. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.